Hey, what's up, Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash holyspirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Seng, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. Joshua chapter 5. So if you'd make your way to Joshua chapter 5, I'm going to read from verses 8 and 9. Then, I'm sorry, and after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's welcome David. It's such a great honor to be here today. Um, we've just been really great friends with uh, many of your pastors, from John Mark to Tyler to um, Bethany, Gavin, Natalie. So it's just been great to get to know folks in the intimate space um, and then to be here with you all today. Um, I also want to just honor and thank the prayer team. I, like, I preach at a lot of different places, and it's just really great to be in a space where you're just like bathed in prayer. And then also, I want to honor the worship team, too. I uh, have a degree in music, and sometimes when you go preach at different places and the uh, worship team sucks, you just got to kind of kind of bear through it, you know? <laughs> and so you all like are just amazing, and I really had to kind of like preserve my voice because I was just like going super hard. I'm like, I got to preach three sermons today, and it's just good to be in a place where just prayer and worship is part of the culture. So I just want to honor that. You know, Tyler gave me the assignment today to really uh, uh, close up the sermon series about being a reconciling community and what is uh, pretty, I think, special and unique about who you all are as a uh, church is that you all are a church that is committed to spiritual formation, committed to prayer, and committed to justice. And I really wanted to, like, like I was just kind of praying into this, and I, I felt like one of my favorite sermons to preach is actually on Acts 2, 42 to 48. Um, but 
I, I just felt like the Lord wanted something different. And so I just, this is a little bit of a fresh bread. I felt like a word to speak into you all. Uh, just a little bit about the Arabon ministry is that Arabon, um, we are a ministry that cultivates Christian communities uh, basically to pursue racial healing within there uh, across divides. And I uh, want to just encourage you all to, um, to, to, to understand that, hey, we're in the practice of purpose of being a reconciling community. So as we just read this text, I want to kind of give a little bit of context for the text. It says that at the time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out of, who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when the when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in the place in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I just want to apologize in advance for the first time visitors that I'm preaching a sermon on circumcision. <laughs> I, I could imagine a husband or turn it to a wife and said, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let us pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you so much uh, that, you know, your, your, your word and your life is full of joy. I pray, Lord, that just impartation of your word would really uh, bring a lot of meaning and purpose and, and guidance. Uh, uh, your word is a, a lamp. Um, a, a, a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. So I pray, Lord, that you would provide that for Bridgetown. In Jesus' name, we pray and all of God's people say, amen. So if you're familiar a little bit like with the story of uh, how God delivered the people of Israel um, out of Egypt, um, the vision was uh, that they would go to a place of promise. The promised land is a, 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 a promise of hope. The promised land is a, a vision of liberation. The promised land is a place of plenty. But see, the thing is, is that you just don't just go to the promised land. You come from a place of Egypt, and Egypt is a, a place of pain. Egypt is a place of tireless toil. And Egypt is a place of oppression. So you don't want to go back to Egypt and you're trying to go towards the promised land and see the wilderness is a place of in-between. 
a place where, where, where you, you can't go back to where you used to be, but then you also aren't in the place where uh, uh, you want to be, in the place where you're trying to see, and you're this place of in-between. It's, it's, you know, in our country, we have been in a place where we don't want to go back to slavery. We don't want to go back to Jim Crow. Uh, we don't want to go back to Oregon being a, a state that was a refuge for racist white people. And so, like, within the charter, Oregon was a place that was considered to, to be an all-white state. And we don't want to go back to that. We don't want to go back to exploitative immigration policies. In reality, we still got exploitative immigration policies. There is this kind of like progress, but not quite arrival. And, and even this, this, this theologian, uh, Kusit Koyama, my Japanese is terrible. <laughs> he says, the wilderness is an open space in all directions. It is a place full of possibilities. The mind can stretch out or plunge into deep meditation in the wilderness. But at the same time, this open space is a dangerous, desolate space inhabited by demons and evil spirits. It is a space not cultivated, not civilized. The wilderness is thus full of promise and full of danger. See, brothers and sisters, when you are in Egypt, like there's a temptation when you're in the wilderness to try to go back. When you aren't quite in the promised land, you're looking at this vision and there's some hope, but there is some danger in the wilderness, in the place of in-between. And, and what's so important to understand about this text today, the location of the text today is not in the promised land. The location of the text today is, is not in Egypt. Even the location of the text today is not in the wilderness, this place of promise and danger. The location of the text today is in the preparation for the promise. See, there is a time where you have to, 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 to receive the preparation for the promise. And it says that at the time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again in the second time. And it says that, and this is the reason why. See, I, I love the Bible because the Bible has like so many fascinating facts. I, I, as I was just thinking about this in my holy imagination, uh, uh, Joshua, as his leader, gets this word from God. And he is like, uh, uh, um, God tells Joshua, I want you to do some circumcision. And so like Joshua turns to Asher, he's like, hey, Asher, can you hand me a jump? And he's like, Asher's like, well, why? He's like, well, you know, God told me, and why do you have a flint knife? Like, this is a very awkward conversation, right, to have. And, and, and God gives him a reason because he says, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all of them, the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all of the people who came had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. See, the, the question that you want to ask is like, why is circumcision so important? It's because the circumcision is really about God's covenant and promise with Abraham. There are sometimes certain traditions 
that you're trying to wonder, like, why in the world do we do this? And circumcision was one of those things where they had to be reminded there was a generation that did not understand why it was important to be circumcised. And this circumcision was a part of the promise and the covenant from God that God would form a people that would be a family. And this was a promise that God made to Abraham. And here's the thing. God didn't form the people and bless them just for the sake of the blessing of their own family. God formed the people and blessed the people so they could be a blessing to the nations. See, I wish I was in a Pentecostal church where they would give some feedback. But see, (laughs) when you get... (laughs) God doesn't form and bless you so that you can just only be blessed by your family. And they're passing on for your generation. God blesses you so that you could be a blessing to others. And so this is the covenant of promise that we're blessed to be a blessing. And so the blessing isn't just to you. The blessing is through you. So in order for the blessing not just to be to you and for you to hoard it, it has to go through you. And there's a preparation for the promise. And so when we look at part of that preparation for the promise to be a blessing to the nations, you have to be people who care about the work of justice and communal prosperity. But you know, the people of God aren't the only people that are concerned about justice and communal prosperity. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is which promise are you preparing for? Because there is a promise, if you have a vision for a future of hope, the preparation is very different depending on what your vision is. See, and the question that we have to ask ourselves, is our preparation uh, for the vision of the work of justice and communal prosperity, is it only connected to your, and limited to the vision of your political imagination? See, brothers and sisters, we live in a time where there is more political discipleship going on than actual biblical discipleship. And the people of God spend more time being discipled by political discipleship because there's billions of dollars trying to get us fearful and angry enough to vote for the people that they want us to vote for. And so what we do is we consume and take this political and economic ideology. And, and, and when we, some of us who are Christians, what we'll do is we'll take that, uh, 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 this political and ph- philosophical economic ideology, and then we'll try to find Bible verses to justify our political, economic philosophy. So what ends up happening is we allow a political and philosophical ideology to read and interpret our text versus allow the text to interpret our political and economic philosophy. I know I wasn't going to get a lot of amens on that, but that is just for, I know people at Bridgetown don't do that. It's the church down the street. But what I want to tell you (laughs) is that what we need to do is question our vision and what is our vision rooted in. And, and the vision of the people of God being a blessing to the nations that are engaging in the work of justice and communal prosperity is not in a progressive ideology. It is not in a conservative ideology. It is in the ideology and in philosophy and the theology of Shalom. 
See, shalom is oftentimes inter- interpreted as peace, but it, you know, it could be peace, it could be harmony, it could be wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. You know, and, and the English language can be so limiting that, that this, this is such a rich, rich Hebrew word. And so the word shalom basically in the English translation, probably the best word to describe it is flourishing. Not not just flourishing for for me and my people and the people that I care about, but flourishing for all of God's people and all of the people, even people who might not necessarily follow the way of Jesus. It is flourishing. And it's this idea that's being communicated that God, that that, that, that the fabric of society has been uh, um, uh, uh, um, broken up. and, And what God is doing is weaving things together the way it originally, God originally intended it to be. That's shalom. So the vision for the people of God is a a vision of shalom and flourishing, not for some people, not for our people, but for all of the people. And and, and the Greek word uh, um, in the New Testament, the word erebon that the ministry is named after, it's a word that means a foretaste of things to come or like a pledge of inheritance. And so in many ways, when the people of God are a foretaste of the, the kingdom of God, when we are embodying being a reconciled community, when we are agents of shalom, we are being a foretaste of a place where there is no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, but the old things have passed away, and behold, I am making everything new. And there is the tree of life that's in the middle of the city of God that is for the healing of the nations. And, and there is so much prosperity that there is gold on, the, on your feet that you're walking on, and everybody has whatever they need. And we are called to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. That is what it means for us to be working towards the promise, the vision of shalom. So preparation for the promise. When you are being committed to this type of work, this is a kind of work that God is calling us to, and we have to do it the way that God wants us to do it. And so when we see in this text, it says, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. See, there's a lot of symbols in the Scripture, like the Hebrew and, 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 and the kind of Old Testament and ancient Near East text. There's a lot of, like, symbols and metaphors and images, and, and God is speaking through pictures. And so, so you have to ask yourself the question, what is the reproach of Egypt? I mean, you know, Egypt is a metaphor of oppression and a, a metaphor of things that you don't want to go back to. But what is this particular reproach that is being symbolically taken away? And I want to kind of spend a little bit of time just walking through some of this Old Testament text to try to understand what has come up as things that are symbolic scriptural reproaches that Egypt represents. First of all is systemic oppression. It says in Exodus 3, 7 through 9, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard from them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Now, who in the world put this woke text up in the Bible here? I don't know. <laughs> what? what in... Okay, all right. I just want to make sure. I just saw woke text. I was just, I got triggered. So, <laughs> so I have come down to rescue them. So, so what's happened is, is that God himself was was, was moved with compassion by the systemic oppression that was going on. And what I try to remind people is that the book of Exodus is about an insecure public official that changes immigration policies and then God intervened. <laughs> Some of y'all will get that on the way home. And so he says, <laughs> so I have come down to rescue them from the land of Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land and land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way of Egyptians are oppressing them. See, it's not only that God moved with compassion and then God intervened to make systemic change for people who were engaged in systemic oppression. God just didn't just only like do it to make himself uh, uh, feel good, but like God delivered them. And then God also put them in a very prosperous and beautiful place. See, sometimes when we engage in, in, in working with people who are poor or misfortunate or on the margins, we just do enough to kind of make ourselves feel good. But we don't even go that, quote, quote, extra step to bring them to a place to flow with milk and honey. This is a very different vision of shalom that God is calling us into as the people of God. And it was so important that God reminded them so much that, remember, I didn't form you when you were at the top of the empire under Joseph. Matter of fact, it, a little bit of verse earlier says that there was a, a, a pharaoh, a king that did not know Joseph, and he began to engage in this oppression. And, and, and God made a promise to Abraham to make them a great family, but he didn't make them a great family when they were at the top of the empire. He made them in a great family where they were under the foot of the empire while they were under oppression, and God said, do not forget that. So part of the reproach that of Egypt is, is, is getting them away from the systemic oppression, but then part of the reproach that God was removing from them is personal practices of sin. So when you think about this, that you've had people who have been oppressed for 400 years, and every time they had to make a move or whatever they did, their whole existence, their whole vision was connected to the imagination of Pharaoh and connected to their oppression. So when you move with people out, God has to set up a whole new system, a whole new way of being. And, and, and in Leviticus, when he's setting up this kind of manual, this way of being as a, a society, he says, and God says in Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, he says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. 
Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and law for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. As much as we try to get away from it, as John Wesley tells us, there is no social holiness without personal holiness. See, we live in a day and time where people have utopian vision for, they don't use the word holiness, but justice is basically holiness in public. And so you want social holiness, but, but, but you can't separate that from personal holiness. And so we just can't do what we want to do and make our own, do what's right in our own eyes and expect to have social holiness. Again, I know I wasn't going to get a lot of amens on that one, but it's in the Bible. You got woke text and you got holiness text. I'm just like, man, I don't know what we're going to do today. And so what is the reproach of Egypt's systemic oppression? The reproach is personal practice of sin. And then the third is the trust in the way of the empire. So, so, so God speaks a word to them when they are crying out for the oppression in Exodus. God prepares them of a word and, and tries to help them to understand that you have to engage in personal holiness, personal piety. But then in Deuteronomy, right before they are going into the promised land, he says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, you say... Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us and be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. See, God knows the heart of, of humanity and understands that we oftentimes don't like as a people of God being a peculiar people, being those strange folks that do things differently than the way everybody else does it. And he knew that was going to be the case of the people of, of Israel. And God said, hey, at some point you're going to want to have a king. I, I want to be your king. I want to be the person that gives you a, a direct vision. But I know at some point you're going to be like everybody else. And, and when that happens... Do not choose somebody who will be just like the way of the world, like the way of the empire. He says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses. Those are like military power for himself and, and make the people uh, uh, return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord God has told you, you are not to go back that way again. See, brothers and sisters, what God is trying to help the people of God is to do is to not trust the way of the empire. So, so when, when God is doing this circumcision ritual and he's leading Joshua in this space, he's trying to remind them to remove the systemic oppression. He's trying to remind them to remove the personal practice of sin. The, he's trying to remind them to remove the trust in the ways of the empire. And that is what God is trying to remind us of today. That we have to care about systemic oppression. That we have to hear the compassion with 
of, of people who are suffering and to enter in and do something about it. We have to not just try to only uh, uh, deal with the social sin. We got to deal with the personal sin. And, and he's trying to help us to, to trust more of the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God than the ways of the empire. And what we see in the public square is oftentimes that there is a debate about the self. That what's wrong in our world is that people are sinful, that people can't be trusted, that, that people are wicked, the total depravity of man, if that was a theological term that was in the public square. But that's in essence the space that maybe conservatives might kind of argue that, that, that we need to only deal with personal responsibility. But then you have others that are committed to the system. It says that the problem is that the system is broken and we need to redeem and restore and, and, and reconcile a holistic way of the system. And there tends to be a self versus system debate. But what we have to understand is the people of God, that the self and the system parties forget is that there's this place of community. And that people form communities and communities form people. And here's the thing, when you're a Christian community, you ought to be forming people into a reconciling community. See, when Jesus oftentimes, like when he says, hey, hey, as often as you get together, I want you to do is I want you to like take communion. Why is one of the reasons why God wants to take us take communion? Because communion is a practice of reconciliation. It's reminding of us of the brokenness that we had with God and humanity. And that it is Christ's broken body that makes reconciliation possible. But then there is an aspect of reconciliation that is important that we have to self-examine ourselves, not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another and the brokenness that is happening here. And so the act of communion is a cross-centered, uh, powerful practice and liturgy of reconciliation. The people of God are called to be a reconciling community. And I've used this phrase, a reconciling community, uh, um, often. And, and I just want to take a moment to define what do I mean by a reconciling community. A reconciling community is a group of people linked by a common, common purpose and rhythm of life together who acknowledge the death of brokenness in our world and actively receives the invitation from God to heal the brokenness of our world holistically from the inside out. See, it's not enough just to be a community that's just, like, coming together. It's important to understand that we live in a broken world. And, and when you are a Christian, you understand that we live in a broken world. But what's so important that not only just acknowledge it, but you receive the active invitation from God. And this is what it means to engage in this work. But then here's the thing. When you receive this active invitation from God to heal the brokenness of our world, it's holistically from the inside out. See, see, Christian transformation doesn't happen from the outside in, but the inside out. See, if you find yourself saying, if only those people over there would get their act together, then you might not be starting in the right place. There's an old Negro spiritual says, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's who? Me, oh Lord, 
standing in the need of prayer. Transformation as we personally become transformed on the inside out, then it, it, it transforms to our families, it transforms to our neighbors, it transforms to our, our place of worship, and our place of worship also transforms to our city and to our state and to our nation and to the world. This is what it means to be a reconciling community. As I work to land a plane and bring us to a close, I want to just share some stories of a reconciling community to try to maybe cast some vision for Bridgetown of like what could it look like for you to be in a journey towards a reconciling community. Uh, uh, this wasn't something that I brilliantly thought about and decided on my own. It was something that God invited us into in 2008 that there were a group of friends of mine living in Richmond, Virginia, the city that I'm from, born and raised. God invited, uh, 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 um, uh, like it was a few friends of mine that were really inspired by a guy named Dr. John Perkins that when they were in college, they said, hey, let's move into a city together, move into a neighborhood, live there for 20, 30, 40 years, and let's just see what God does. So my wife, Joy, and I, we, we, we moved into this community, and we were um, the only African-American black married couple to decide to move into this community. Most of these friends were white or Asian. Um, uh, my pastor, my spiritual father, mentor, um, he actually grew up, in, and his wife grew up in this particular neighborhood. And he grew up in a foster home, uh, met Jesus when he was 20-something years old, and just started praying praying that, like, God would uh, transform a city, praying uh, uh, that his community, and prayed for, like, 20 years. Well, he didn't know when he started praying that many of us were, like, 8 and 10 years old. So he had to kind of wait faithfully in prayer for 20 years just so that we were old enough to buy a house, to move into a community, and then we had a vision of being somewhere for 20, 30, 40 years to see what God does. And so this is a picture of our community right here, East End Fellowship. And um, this is, I can't remember how long ago this is. I mean, this is a, a lot of these little kids are now in college now at this point. And when you see in this picture, you see some people who are uh, Baptists and Presbyterian, Lutheran, Pentecostals, and those who are suspicious of Pentecostals. <laughs> You, you see people who are like trust fund babies and folks who experience um, houselessness, uh, and, and they're all within this community. And so, you know, I would love to tell you that, like, when we first started this church, it was like, we just thought that, like, casting this vision was a great thing to do when all of a sudden everything would work out well, but it was very, very difficult. I mean, I'll show you a couple of things. Uh, um, that happened, but like God showed up in really miraculous ways. So this is the, the building in which we uh, worship in the Robinson Theater. And what's really cool is that this was an abandoned building at one time, right around the time that we were asking the question about, hey, should we be a worshiping community and, and engaging in this work? God moved on the heart of two Christian businessmen uh, uh, to just like buy this building. 
This building was abandoned. They had no idea about this building. And, and, and you know, business guys, they, when they spend tons of money, they kind of know why they're building it. But God moved on this businessman's heart, these two businessmen's heart, and they end up knowing that this was, they discovered that this is the building that Bill Bojangles Robinson, the, the tap dancer that would be with like Shirley Temple, he grew up in this particular neighborhood, and this was the first um, African-American movie theater. So they restore this. So as God is working on these two Christian businessmen to kind of use their money for uh, um, whatever God was calling them to do, they didn't quite know, and they're being obedient to God. We are a community um, forming, and we need a place to worship. And so uh, um, in this particular neighborhood, there's the wealthy part of the neighborhood and the poor part of the neighborhood. It's the white part of the neighborhood and the black part of the neighborhood. And this place is right in the center, and it's like one of the first third spaces that we have in the community. And right by the time this place is finished, it's an opportunity for our church to then start to worship together. See, this is a little bit of like what it looks like to be a reconciling community. And so I remember being on a platform in the Robinson Theater, similar to here, and I made this really interesting observation that I was like, oh, we got two Kevin Joneses in our church. One Kevin Jones was an uh, economist that was married and had two sons, and he would, and his family would sit anywhere in the church where, you know, there was a seat and they were very comfortable in that space. The other Kevin Jones was a guy who experienced homelessness the greater part of his adult life, and, and he would always stand in the left back of the church. And I was like, oh, wow, we got two Kevin Joneses in our church. That's quite interesting. And then I just noticed, I was like, you know, why does the Kevin Jones that is the economist, he sits everywhere in the church with his family. And the other Kevin Jones would stand in the back, and at the end of the service, he would, we would eat meals together, and he would talk. And he was a very active member part of our church. But he would never sit anywhere during the worship service where everybody else would sit. And Holy Spirit said, David, when you prepare sermons, when you prepare liturgies, when you prepare worship, which Kevin Jones do you prepare for? And I realized, although the guy that experienced homelessness a great part of his life, part of his adult life was African-American, but educationally, socioeconomically, he wasn't like me. The one that was economist had more uh, similar like me, and a lot of my bias was towards the one that was similar to me. So being a part of a reconciling community meant that I needed to have an imagination for the person that is not like me educationally, economically. And so uh, I also noticed that most of the leadership positions that happened, we, we could have like said in our, if we were conscious about it, we could have said uh, bachelor's degree required. Again, the biases. And so what it started to do was to get young people 18 to 25 studying theology, studying justice, studying reconciliation. And I began to realize, like ask the question, what does spiritual formation look like for people who don't read, people who don't have a similar education? And, and we started this thing called the Urban Doxology Songwriting Internship where we would get like young people 18 to 25 from different socioeconomic backgrounds. One kid in this picture, um, dad has a private plane. Another kid uh, in this picture grew up on the south side, and he has, you know, Joy and I were probably the first or second 
middle-class, black, married couple that he interacted with intimately. And so they would write songs and, and, and they, they would uh, write theologically rich uh, uh, worship music and we would produce these records and, and we uh, uh, would create something called the Urban Doxology Project and you could see some of the beauty that was created out of this work and you could go on Spotify or Apple Music and check out some of the things that was written out of community. And so some folks uh, um, um, were funding this, other people were creating this and we are creating beauty out of a reconciling community. And so 10 years into it, in 2018, we start to get hit by the struggle bus. Fatigue sets in. We're tired of the long obedience in the same direction. And, you know, our neighborhood starts to go through gentrification. And that wasn't part of our, our plan. We, that wasn't a part of what we um, knew. And so we're dealing with class struggles. We're dealing with racial tensions like everybody else is in the country and we're dealing with political tensions and these are things that we're kind of praying and there are people that are signing off over this but we're trying to feel like God still calls us to be faithful over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What does this look like? And I can't remember the exact date but one day my wife and I find ourselves on a plantation down in South Carolina. Let's just say I got reasons why I try not to be on plantations down in South Carolina. (laughs) And we get invited by somebody who's in our community that's reading Acts 2. And she realizes that she's inherited a quarter of a million dollars just because she's somebody's granddaughter. And, and she's reading Acts 2, and she's like, you know what? My husband makes a ton of money. They live way below that means. They were already very generous. And they're like, I just inherited a quarter million dollars just because I'm somebody's granddaughter. There's a lot of people in my community who have inherited a lot of obstacles because of the color of their skin and the legislation of our uh, uh, country nationally, statewide, and locally. What would it look like, just like in Acts 2 and Acts 4, for me to give this inheritance over to a group of friends who are in community so that I can create some empowerment and some, some, some uh, uh, passion with this inheritance to other folks. And so in many ways, we kind of committed, created like a trust together. And so my wife and I and two other um, couples were invited to be part of this reconciling community where we are creating ways and pathways of giving out money for empowerment. So we're in 2023 and there's less people. It's not as exciting. It's, it's doing the, 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 the long, faithful work. And I, I just want to read an email that I copied and pasted from my email address of the happiness last year, 2023, from a caseworker and a recipient of this resources. There was a woman who was a single parent mother who was doing all that she could do to, um, to get her family a home and the community got so expensive that she couldn't even live in that community anymore. But then the grant that she received was connected to the location, so she needed to find a location that she could, um, that she could afford to live in. It says, hey, um, thank you so much for your call this morning. This is her caseworker. I was truly overwhelmed by the generosity of this group of givers. God bless you all. 
I reached out to this lady to tell her of this, this blessing, and she broke down crying. We were crying and thanking God together over the phone. And then the woman said, dear anonymous giver, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your assisting my children and me with the remaining deposit on my first new home. Your gift brightened my day, and it continued to I, it will continue to be appreciated. I told my 17-year-old, and his response was, I had a feeling we were going to get that house, Mom. That's God. I am truly a believer and receive your encouraging words of wisdom from God. I am so grateful, thankful, and blessed to receive such a gift. You are a blessing from God. I also want you to know that a generous person like you will prosper. God will see it that you, too, are rewarded bountiful blessings. Brothers and sisters, the journey to being a reconciling community is a long road. It's a long road, and it's a long obedience in the same direction. We oftentimes overestimate what we can do and the change that we can make through social media. We oftentimes overestimate the change that we could even make in a year. But we underestimate what God can do over 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years. And so the word I want to to, to part into to to Bridgetown is to have a vision of, of being faithful, of sowing this word, the sowing being a reconciling community. And what I want to prayer, my prayer for you is that you allow God to prepare you for the promise. And understand that it will be painful, but it will be worth it. Let us pray.